Spire. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that this episode has a POAP. If you don't know what a POAP is, it's essentially like a ticket stub, like a uh, proof of your attendance to this episode of the show. It's only available for the first 24 hours, um, but you can find all the details in the, in the description. And just stay tuned because I will jump in at some point later in this episode and I will give you the secret word that you need to claim the POAP. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Saris. This is the show where I usually talk to entrepreneurs and creatives to reveal the unexpected paths to where they are today. But this is a very special episode with Alex Reutenberg, also known as the NFT CPA. This episode is going to be so valuable to you and anyone who may be an NFT collector, an NFT artist, uh, someone who is saving, saving, buying, and maybe farming crypto and doing the things that are so, so fuzzy right now. It's, we are in a very um, challenging time when it comes to accounting for all of this stuff. And Alex was gracious enough to give me so much of his time and dive into every single aspect. And there's so much more, but every single question that I had, he has answered to a wonderful degree. I feel so much more confident in understanding the space, even though it's still a little scary because there is a lot to to digest here. Um, this is we're talking a lot about him and his service and his company. This isn't like an ad for them or anything, but I really appreciate him taking the time. And um, it is NF, the NFT CPA on Twitter and NFT.CPA to find his company if you want to work with them. But those links will will be later. But this is just a very, very informative episode. So without further ado, my conversation with Alex Reutenberg. Is there any sort of disclaimer we need up front, like uh, financial advice or anything like that? So this is not specific tax advice to anybody. This is a general conversation uh, on general topics of what we're seeing currently in the market. And then some of the positions that we're thinking about of how to do it. But this does not support or particularly give any single individual any support. Uh, everybody's situation, um, as much as somebody can say, that's exactly my situation, there's probably 10 different things that will uh, separate them or differentiate that person. Uh, so uh, this is a general conversation. Um, if anybody has any particular questions, they need to speak with their uh, tax advisor. Mm-hmm. And you're based in New York City, correct? I'm based in New York City. About 70% of my clients are actually out in San Francisco and LA. Oh, so okay. we probably know the California rules um, as well, if not better than the New York rules at this point, because we deal with the California rules so extensively. Uh, but our client base is um, across the US, across the entire nation, as well as uh, some clients who are international. Okay, so then how does that sort of tie in? Because the accountants I've worked with in the past were just uh, local, typically. Um, Was that something you were doing prior to NFTs sort of in the firm? Or how did you end up uh, getting so much? Yeah, my entire client base um, is very remote. Um, With a lot of the clients that I work with in the startup world, they are very much... um, in California. So if the person was sitting next to me on the train, I wouldn't even know this. Um, I actually had a conversation earlier today with a employee from a company that went public recently. He's been a client of mine for about three years, but today was the first day that we both connected via video. 
Um, and he's like, you know, this is the first time I'm like, yeah, that we've seen each other's face. Yeah. This is the first time. Um, so for us, we're fully remote team. Um, we have people who work for us in the U S New York, uh, New Jersey, so on and so forth. Um, it doesn't really matter to us where somebody sits from an employment standpoint, as many of us have figured out as a result of COVID, we can do our job remotely. Um, and the same thing happens to us for, from a client perspective. A lot of it is governed by the IRS. And as long as you're a U.S. citizen, green card holder, or you physically sit in the U.S., you're subject to the IRS rules. Um, so we're able to help somebody in New York, Connecticut, or in Kentucky. Yeah, that's really valuable to know because yeah, I didn't realize that, that you could have such a broad uh, client base. So then locally, sort of how much of an impact does does the local tax um, sort of, or what kind of role does it play like for knowing the specific like California versus New York and et cetera? Um, every single state has their particular nuances. So one of the funnier ones in California is that um, if you have an LLC with multiple members, for federal tax purposes, it's a partnership. But in California, you still need to file an LLC tax return. doesn't matter if it's a partnership or not, you still have to file an LLC return. Um, the other big nuances is each state has their own requirements for estimated taxes. State of Utah, as long as you pay your tax bill by April, they're happy. The state of California, there is the safe harbor of 90% or 110%, unless your income is over a million dollars. Once your income goes over a million dollars, the 110% safe harbor rule goes out the window and you have to pay 90% of your income taxes throughout the year. And the funny thing with California is that they only have three quarters, not four. So they have a first quarter, a second quarter, and a fourth quarter. They don't have a third quarter. That's interesting. <laughs> so it's things like this where it's very state specific that are sometimes weird. Um, how do you have only three quarters? Um, but that's what the state regulations are. And unless you're really under on top of or understanding what the requirements or regulations are, especially in states like California, um, you could end up with a hefty tax bill with penalties and interest that are not necessary. And safe harbor, is that basically just the if you pay um, estimated or not? Or is that something different? So what Safe Harbor does is, um, I guess we're getting right into the estimates. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, what Safe Harbor is, um, if you don't know how much you're going to owe in taxes at the end of the year, but you know it's more than what you made last year, what you can do is so that you avoid penalties and interest is pay in 110%. So if you owed $10,000 in taxes last year on call it $100,000 of income, as long as you pay in $11,000 spread into four chunks throughout the year, April, June, uh, September, and January, um, as long as you make those payments, uh, 11000 divided by four, even if you make $10 million, the IRS doesn't care um, how much your tax payment in April is going to be, as long as you made those payments throughout the year. So you're, you're doing the 110% rule. You've paid in 11000 versus 10000 prior year. You end up with no interest or taxes, and you have a hefty bill in April. Um, so what is nice is that the IRS just basically gave you a 0% interest loan. Um, what's bad is if you don't do estimated taxes throughout the year, you might not have enough fiat currency 
in order to pay that tax bill. The IRS, unfortunately, at this point in time, does not accept NFTs or crypto as a form of payment. Um, But that's what the safe harbor does, is it allows you to avoid penalties and interest. Mm -hmm. Something to look out for with um, states like California is, great, you had an awesome year, you made $10 million. But if you're... um, if you're over the million dollar threshold, the 110% rule goes out the window and you now have to pay in at least 90% of the taxes that are due in the year. Um, and the usual tax rate for California is 12.3% and any income over a million dollars is subject to a 1% surcharge, getting you up to a 13.3% tax rate. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different nuances and unless you're following along and aware of it, it could become... Uh, an unfortunate surprise uh, by April. The other big thing that I want to say, and then you can continue on. uh, The other big thing that I want to say is that extensions are an extension to file, not an extension to pay. So if you have, let's say a million dollar tax bill with the IRS, you can't just say, I'll put it on extension and I'll pay it in October you have to at least go on a payment plan with the IRS because if you don't make at least a payment plan with the IRS by April, you're then non-compliant for your 21 taxes and they will start to charge you interest and penalties once again, even if you're in safe Harbor. Yeah, that is a lot to, uh, to keep tabs on. I mean, that's, it's really important because like everything, so this is as much for me as for uh, the audience, just because like we run a minimalist business. It's just me and my business partner, an LLC partnership, pass their income. I do all the accounting, just keep it as lean and simple as possible. So everything that comes in just goes up. It's as basic as it can be, but there's things like this that I just don't know. Uh, like so much that I don't know. Like I'm using software, you know, software that's built for the user, for the business to sort of do their own thing. But there's so many nuances to all of this. So yeah, this is... This is just hugely valuable all around. Um, so you were working with uh, Silicon Valley already. Um, so sort of the startup mentality. Is that how you found your way into like NFTs, crypto and the like? Yeah, um, I was working with a lot of uh, tech employees, Facebook, Google, things of that nature. And then um, one of my existing clients reached out to me and said, hey, there's a company that's looking for some help with their 501c3 status. Uh, they're a crypto company. Would you be willing to help? And I was like, sure, happy to have a conversation. Worst case scenario, I burn an hour speaking with the company. Um, so spoke with them, turned out to be a gift crypto nonprofit arm of Coinbase. Um, we had a conversation with them. Um, we helped them with certain things that they were looking for. Um, and then we ended up uh, getting more and more involved with more Coinbase employees. Um, this past year when Coinbase went IPO, we advised roughly 150, 160 Coinbase employees on their equity compensation. Um, and then they ended up, it was basically the equivalent of about $1.2 billion worth of equity comp that we advised on for Coinbase specifically. Um, but as you can imagine over the years, all of those Coinbase employees are very much involved in crypto. Oh yeah. Um, so we've been working with them on some of them is just purely buying and selling different cryptos. Uh, a lot of them, it's just, just buying, uh, a lot of them don't sell. 
Um, but we were also involved with some blockchains, some DeFi companies. Um, so we're currently working with roughly 25 or so DeFi projects. Um, helping and advising them on just general tax compliance, as well as planning, um, as well as compensation of employees. So we've been pretty well plugged into this uh, world since roughly 2018. Nice. Um, and then early 21, uh, things really picked up. Um, ended up helping write the NFT tax guide, which was released as an NFT in October. Uh, spoke at NFT NYC as the only CPA at the entire event. Um, so a lot of things culminated towards the end of 21. And I think same as what happened with most of us um, in the NFT community. Um, and we've been trying to help as many people as we can ever since. Yeah. And how big is the team? Uh, we currently have four people in addition to myself. Uh, we also have an additional person starting actually tomorrow um, uh, who's going to be heading up operations for us. And then we're also hiring uh, two more tax managers who one is supposed to be starting January 31st and then another person we're still have conversations about it. So we're, we're hopefully, hopefully going to be around seven or eight people by the end of January um, and then just continue to grow there. We want to help as many people as we can with their compliance needs uh, for their 21 year, get through April 15th, take about a week or so off after crazy busy season, yeah. and then come back May 1st and help anybody who's on extensions uh, to get things wrapped up as soon as possible. Yeah, that's a lot of growth. A lot of growth, but it makes sense because you are, <laughs> you're fulfilling a need that so many people have, but they're really seemingly aren't that many people like you and and your team who know sort of what to do with this i feel like there's feels like there's a lot of question marks still as to like how to approach it like just sort of across the board yeah there's there's a large vacuum of information coming from the irs and i think until there's a true information uh being provided by the irs it's going to be a bit limited in the advice that people can 100% give you that this will be taxed this way. Um, we try to get people to a 70 or 80% confidence with the advice that we give them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be things or individuals that don't agree with what we say, um, whether they want to be more aggressive, whether they basically say that the IRS doesn't have the ability to tax decentralized because it's still in crypto. It's never gone to fiat, so on and so forth. Everybody's allowed to their opinion. Um, we take the position that we do based on conversations we've had with the IRS. Um, we've gone through a number of our clients have gone through audits related to crypto. Um, so we take the position based on our learnings from our experience so far. Um, I don't want to put clients into a position of like, yeah, sure, you don't have to claim this as, in as income. And then, sure, I'll sign that return. And then at the end of the day, if that advice is incorrect, the one who's liable for the taxes, penalties, interest at the end of the day is the tax, uh, is the client. It's the taxpayer, not the tax advisor. Um, and the tax client, the taxpayer is signing under perjury that the tax return is complete and accurate to the best of their knowledge. And I don't want to put my clients in a position 
where they end up having a surprise because of if bad information, bad advice that was given to them. If it's a, hey, we could have saved you an extra 200 bucks on a bill that's $50,000. I think if we're off by 200 bucks, I don't think anybody's really going to complain too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a $50,000 bill and we're off by $30,000, I think that's a problem. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So um, then what are the ramifications? So say someone right now, they, I mean, well, I, I kind of want to dive into like creators versus collectors and a few things. There's some nuance there that I think uh, would be worth fleshing out. But someone right now, just across the board, no matter who it is, who maybe is like, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to presume that taxes don't apply to what I have. Sort of what are they at risk of? Uh, moving forward. So if they underreport their tax liability, not income, but tax liability by over 25%, the IRS can go back on a filed tax return seven years. Oh, wow. If a tax return is never filed, they can go back indefinitely because the statute of limitation never starts until you actually submit the tax return. So if you never submit a tax return, you never even give an IRS a zero, then statute of limitation never ends. They can come back to you after 50 years. Wow. Um, if they come back to you, you've submitted a return, it's incorrect, um, and it's what they consider to be egregious, over 25% of your tax liabilities under uh, stated. They can go back up to seven years, and from what we've seen is that they will basically automatically audit you for 10 calendar years going forward. Wow. Okay. And what does an audit actually mean in the, in the end? So audits usually start off with a, here's a letter. We, we would like some documents. If they don't believe that you've done something egregious right away with 100% proof, they'll send, send you what's called an IDR, information document request. It's a, please provide us with all records according to your bank statements, credit cards, so on and so forth. It's a gathering, data fact-finding, data gathering, so on and so forth. Once they have all of your credit cards and, and bank statements, they will ask you to confirm that there are no other banks. And they're doing this for basically setting up a case that you may be lying to them. So once you say, I have no other bank accounts, they will go through all of the activity. Any deposits or withdrawals will be examined. If it's direct deposit from your W-2 job, pretty simple for them to identify it. They will probably won't even ask questions about it as long as things tie out. If they see on and off rails, it's either Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, whatever else you're using, they'll start to ask you, what are these accounts? Um, if they start to see continuous transfers, wires, ACHs, whatever, between one account to another, they will once again start to ask you questions. Um, and it's all at the very beginning, very friendly gathering information documents. Once they have all of that information documents, they will just continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, we've had audits where client hasn't done anything wrong whatsoever, but it's a high net worth, ultra high net worth individual. And the IRS thinks that there's something to be had. 
Um, and those audits can literally drag on for two plus years. Wow. And it's not so much the cost of the audits. It's the mental drain that the clients have and lost time because that's time that you can spend on another project, growing your business, whatever it might be, that you're now instead looking for that receipt for $2,000 from a contractor that you don't know where it is. Um, so it's things like that where it's just like an audit, as much as nobody likes to pay taxes, an audit is something 10 times worse. If you don't like going to the dentist, an IRS audit is that much worse. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you, you brought up the uh, 25% kind of egregious. Is that um, for someone who might be like, oh, I'm small potatoes, like that's nothing. Is there some sort of threshold maybe that they put into place? Like if you make above this much, then the 25% is really what we're looking at? It's cut and dry, 25%. So if your tax liability is $1,000, if you're off, off by 250 bucks, or if you're off by $251, yeah. you're over 225%. So what that usually means is that your penalties interest end up being much higher then if somebody who's off by like 2%, they'll be like, all right, 2%, our current interest rates are 3% uh, plus penalties, another 3 to 5%. You to owe us in total 10% on top of whatever your tax bill is. So you owed us $1,000 in taxes, 10% of the tax amount, another 100 bucks per year. It's been three years, so we'll take $1,300 from you. Thank you and have a good day. Now, if you're quote unquote small potatoes and you're over that 25% threshold, what ends up happening is that your penalties and interest kick up to about 10 to 15%. It's worse than a credit card loan. And if you're doing, okay, I owe $1,000 in taxes plus 250 bucks in penalties, 250 bucks in interest, and it's been three years, that means that I owe $1,000 in taxes and $1,500 in penalties and interest. Wow. Yeah, that's substantial. <laughs> so it ends up being a question of like, yes, you didn't report it or you took an extra deduction or you did something that might be a little bit more aggressive. Is it worth it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about maybe mitigation tactics and things later. Like, I hate tactics. It sounds like a really like dirty word. But um, before we go really too far, you mentioned um, Gemini Coinbase, sort of those the on and off ramp. Um, but people have their standalone wallets that they will have to um, maybe fill initially from their Coinbase, but then those aren't within the reporting that I'm sure Coinbase, Gemini, all of these, they're going to send the appropriate forms to us because they have the, the know your customer, the KYC. Um, but on your own wallet, this is your own sort of entity. And I imagine people think like, oh, this is floating on its own. No one needs to know. Um, sort of what, <laughs> what, what is your sort of uh, feedback on that uh, thought? <laughs> so there, there's this song or, or the meme is who's going to know, but who's going to know. <laughs> and my usual, the best way that I could answer this is um, in the middle of 21, the East coast pipeline was ransomware. After about a week, the ransom was paid in Bitcoin. After about two days, miraculously, the government was able to somehow hack the wallet and get back most of the Bitcoin. 
So anybody who thinks that the IRS, the government doesn't know, they very much know. It's just a matter of time. I think what the IRS and government was waiting for is for a big year in crypto value and overall wealth to be accumulated and generated. And I hate to say it, but I think 21 was that year. So yes, the the IRS still uses fax machines in order to communicate with clients. But at the same time, the IRS is investing money into the same software that a lot of us use to calculate our gains and losses on crypto or track that activity. They're using the exact same software, sometimes something a lot more powerful. So they're able to scrape the entire uh, crypto uh, ledgers, and they have all of that internally. And I hate to say it, but the ENS tokens or ENS domains made it that much easier for people to associate multiple accounts with multiple people. And now you're able to, because it's a name or a um, Twitter handle or something else along those lines that you can somehow associate with somebody, it actually makes it that much easier to take a non-KYC'd wallet and connect it to somebody else. And if you've ever touched a KYC'd account with a hardware wallet, whatever it might be, they will trace it and they will figure it out. It's a lot of people talk about, well, if I want to commit some sort of crime, how do I do it? The answer is straight cash. If you get a duffel bag worth of cash, it's really difficult for somebody to trace it. If somebody sends you two cents on of crypto, of whatever, Bitcoin, ETH, whatever it might be. Yes, the gas is probably more expensive than two cents (laughs) itself. But if somebody ever sent you two cents, you'll be able to find those two cents probably in 50 years. Yeah, and like that is the thing. People think like the ledger is everything. So this is the beauty is everything is documented. You can you can trace it back. Like we can trace it back. We can trace any sort of movement of an NFT, of crypto, of uh, like value. So to think that the government wouldn't be like, oh, this this connected with Coinbase once. Well, now I know exactly who it is, is sort of, uh, it's naive to to think that. Um, and I don't say that to anyone like, who might be listening. I don't say that like, like as a dig, but everyone always wants to uh, keep as much money as they can, which is completely understandable. But this stuff is serious. Like it's, the mechanisms have been in place for a very long time. And like you said, like just for all of accounting and taxing, tax season and everything. And as you said, this year is the uh, the balloon in the massive, massive amount of value that's being shifted around between wallets, between purchases and sells, um, that it just makes sense that now's the time to really ramp up, <laughs> ramp up that tracking. So, oh, did you have something to say? Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say two, two other things. Um, the IRS has the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. So they're always coming in at least two to three years post-fact to be like, can you please provide us this information? So you've already done the transactions. It's not like you can be like, oh, I just won't sell it or I'll hold on to it. I won't claim it. I won't something else. You've already done it. So it's very difficult for you to retroactively to be like, I'm not going to do it. So therefore it's not taxable event. 
they usually come in two to three years post fact. They have the benefit of hindsight. So there's that. And then the other big thing is there's a very clear delineation between tax planning, which is 100% legitimate and legal, and tax avoidance, which is a one-way ticket to handcuffs. I'm just going to jump in right here and let you know that the secret word for this episode is tax time. That is T-A-X-T-I-M-E. Tax time is the secret word, and that is to claim the POAP. If you don't know what that means, you can check in the description. There's a link explaining what POAPs are, but this is only available for the first 24 hours after this episode goes live. So again, that word is tax time. Back to the show. Um, Okay, yeah, so I just thought we would dive in now to, or I'd like to dive into sort of the baseline of how to look at this as maybe starting as a collector. Like, I normally don't have a list of questions, but because these are so specific uh, things, I wanted to make sure that we uh, sort of touch on everything that's important. Um, so you mentioned the ENS airdrop. I think that's sort of an easy place to start. How, um, how do we look at that? Because that um, I have my, my thoughts on what that is. It's not just free money, but um, yeah, how, how do you look at any sort of airdrop when it comes to a token that has a value? Sure thing. So um, don't want to say any airdrop because okay. different airdrops have different characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about SOS and ENS tokens that were dropped, I think, to most of the community. So a lot of people are able to connect with it pretty easily. Um, So the initial value of the drop, there's a question of when do you have domain and control of those tokens? Because that is when they become taxable to you and they would be taxable to you as ordinary income. Uh, Schedule one, other income, uh, that's where that initial valuation would be reported. So, Um, the way we're looking at it, uh, for a lot of our clients is when the value of those tokens is greater than your cost to transfer it so greater than your gas, it's considered income too, uh, because you have the ability to move it. The decision to not do anything is a decision. So if you say, I don't want to claim them just yet, I want to leave them in, in, the contract, I'll claim them later. That is a decision to leave them in that wallet. Interesting. So, um, real quick, uh, I just want to stop there for one second. Of so, course. not if it's not even in your actual wallet, but you have the access to claim it. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Oh wow. If you have the ability to claim it and move it from one wallet to another, or from a contract to your wallet, and it's worth more than gas, then it's your money. Wow. Yeah, that's something. Oh. <laughs> um, so it, it's your your income, your money. Um, you don't have to do anything else other than click the button and have pay the gas and have it move over. There's a value in you claiming that. Could I just um, pause you there for one moment? Of course. Now, that does bring like this really gray area because say... Um, there's so many airdrops. Say I didn't know ENS didn't airdrop for whatever reason. Somehow I missed it. Um, but I had access because I own 
like all the names that I, whatever names I own. So I have X number of tokens, but I didn't, I know it's, it's so hard to claim like I didn't know, but arguably there could be an unlimited amount of token drops that I have access to that I don't like in theory that I don't know about that never really, never really explode and balloon. Um, is there anything there? Obviously this feels like it needs a really concrete law about it, but is there anything there that you're thinking about in terms of just that broad opportunity that's out there? So the perfect example of this is actually the SOS token, because if you don't claim it by, I want to say sometime in June, it goes into the treasury. So let's say you're on some sort of retreat, whatever it is, and you'll never be able to claim the token. And it expires and it goes back into the treasury. At that point in time, the way I would look at it is, yes, you had the ability, but in reality, it's expired and you don't have the access to actually claim it. At that point, I, I think it's a safe argument to be had with the IRS to say it shouldn't be taxable income. It, it never had access to it for whatever reason, decided to basically forego and just basically it evaporated. ENS tokens, I don't believe have that expiration date. I think that they might, but I'm not 100% sure. I don't remember off the top of my head if they do. So if you always have the ability to claim it and you ultimately claim it, you should have reported it in 21 when the tokens were initially allowed for you to claim. The other question is going to be, well, I got this token that is basically some sort of Trojan horse, some sort of hack. I don't want to touch it. It might blow up my entire wallet. In that case, we're taking the position which can be completely argumentative with the IRS. We're taking the position that if we believe that it's a virus and the client never touches it, does not destroy it, does not do anything with it, and never interacts with that token, we're taking a position that because it's a virus, we have an argument to be had with the IRS that we couldn't even destroy it because destruction of it would be triggering the, the virus. So we would basically take the position that it's not taxable. Um, but if it's a token that you're wait, waited until January to claim because you thought you could defer the taxes until 22 versus 21, it should have been income to you in 21. Wow. And you said when it becomes, uh, did you say under domain? How did you phrase that? Domain control. Domain control. Okay. So when that happens, is that the moment of the taxable number, the value of uh, what you have to pay taxes on? Correct. Correct. Okay. So even if, so it can be sitting in a contract just to like, yeah, reiterate, it can be sitting in a contract, you have access to it, but you never claimed it. You therefore didn't convert it into fiat or even a stable coin, but in theory that could plummet in value from when you had access to the point that you inevitably do claim it. Um, what does that mean for that taxable income? So what could happen is that in 21 tax return, you should have filed, call it $1,000 of ordinary income. And then whenever you ultimately claimed that token and it went down to zero, you would take it as a capital loss. Okay. Yeah. So there is a mechanism there that, that sort of 
Correct. It, it, it works out, even though not uh, ideally. So would you have then, in in a perfect scenario, would you have then paid the the capital gains on um, on that token in twenty one? But then later you take the loss. So the money was already gone, but you're taking the loss. So it sort of becomes a wash. Is that sort of how that works? Correct. Correct. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's really, really interesting to know. So for someone then who right now, they had ENS, they had SOS, they, they're still holding that token. They have that taxable event. What do you do? Because now it's already 2022. We're talking, uh, what is it, mid-January. This will come out a few weeks after this. But um what should someone do if, say, they had this taxable event, they didn't convert it into fiat? Does that then, before the end of the year, they didn't convert it? Does that throw anything off in terms of the like accounting for them? Because now they would have to make fiat, have fiat to pay the tax that happened in a different calendar year. So whether or not you convert something to fiat does not change whether or not it's taxable. So let's say... You took one ETH, you minted a board ape, you were able to sell it for 200 ETH, and then you were able to buy uh, twin flames, you were able to buy whatever else, 20 other projects, they all continued to balloon. You now have $5,000, 5,000 ETH. First of all, congratulations. Uh, second of all, Uncle Sam will want their share, and they will do the tax calculation based on the exchange rate from ETH to US dollar at the time of every single transaction, not at the t- value of ETH on December 31st um, as to whatever that 5,000 ETH was worth. And why that's so important to understand is that unfortunately ETH has gone as high as 48, which is great. But if you had minted your project or sold out at that point in time, ETH is currently between 4,000 and 4,200. It's down quite a bit, and it was down even lower than that. So if you at no point in time converted from ETH to um, fiat, or at least a stable coin, then you potentially will have to sell more ETH than the 37% federal tax rate in order to cover your tax bill in fiat. Yeah, and that could destroy someone potentially. That is so much, especially when um, a project, say, sells out and they're allotting that money to vi- to various things already, but then don't have the, um, the fiat in place to pay for that, what came in. Yeah, we had uh, we have one project that sold out in Solana, and they sold out close to what the peak was. They did not engage with us. They didn't talk to us until late November, uh, early December. And the amount of Solana that they'll have to sell and the amount of ETH that they're having to sell is quite a bit more than 37% in order for them to cover the tax bill. Yeah. Um, not something that was a comfortable conversation to be had. Um, but we got through it. We told them the numbers. We explained it to them, the calculations. They walked away a little kicking and screaming. Uh, about a week later, they cooler comms prevailed. They, they came back and they said, we understand. We don't like it, but we understand. 
um, and they've started the process of putting in the, the rails that are necessary. Uh, they have a couple of new projects in the pipeline. And the first question they did before setting the second project up is how much money do we need to convert to fiat after the sale? Um, and they're converting a particular percentage that's applicable to them straight to stablecoin. And then once, it, once it's in the stablecoin, they can yield farm it, whatever else. Um, and uh, they always have that money available to pay the tax bill. Yeah, that's so important. And I could see then contracts doing a contract to contract interaction at some point where when it comes in immediately, it sells for stablecoin. That would be a very, a very valuable thing for these projects to have now, knowing that that has to happen at that moment. Because, um, yeah, I guess here's the question then. What would you recommend that a project does? How quickly should they be converting? Should they be trying to do like semi-daily or weekly? Is monthly good enough? I mean, with the fluctuations, it's so, um, it's so volatile. But also, um, what percentage would you say just sort of across the board is 37 something people should consider? So um, timing-wise, mm -hmm. uh, doing it on every single transaction ends up being too expensive on yeah. a gas perspective. Mm -hmm. um, especially like over the last week, I've seen a number of mints happening and it has driven the gas as high as 700 uh, guay. Um, and I think it's gone higher than that recently. So what you don't want to do as a project is during the minting process to continuously have to convert to a stable coin or um, fiat. Um, my recommendation, around four o'clock in the morning, might be a little too crazy to do, but around four o'clock in the morning is usually the lowest gas prices. If you do it once a day, especially during the early stages of either the initial mint or the initial large secondary transactions, once a day should be sufficient. And then once you're, you're done with the primary sales and all that's happening, secondary transactions, you can look to see what the market is doing and volatility there. And then as a team, decide what volatility are you comfortable with or what you're not. Um, different people have different risk appetites. Yeah. Um, and then is that percentage then like maybe 37% um, something to look so at? Then, then the conversation of percentage goes into play first question is how much are you selling? And what I mean by that is somebody who's selling a $2 million project is going to have a higher tax rate than somebody who's doing 200,000. So quick back in the old calculation. Uh, there's also the other thing is not just federal, but also state taxes that are due. Mm -hmm. um, so on a federal perspective, 200,000, I would say 25% plus wherever your state tax rate is. So states like California, New York, it can go as high as 13% for Cali, 14% for New York. Um, if you're on the higher end projects, $2 million, $3 million, $5 million, whatever that number is, um, I would look to do 37%, maybe even a little bit higher than that for Social Security and Medicare. And then the top rates of 13 14%, depending on the states you're in. Um, for state purposes. Uh, so it very well could be for artists, uh, your marginal tax rate could be over 50% between federal and state taxes. Wow. Yeah, that is that is a lot. That is a big bill <laughs> to, to have set aside. Um, so 
let me just, I just want to look here, but just to be sure that I touch on um, some of the things. So the other thing that I do want to factor into the sure. percentage question is that you don't want to do that percentage on gross. What you want to do it is on what your profit is. So if let's say you minted a million dollars and 10% of that goes to your developer, you're paying taxes on 900,000, not a million. So that percentage, call it 50%, is going to be off of 900,000. So tax bill of 450 versus 50% of a million, which is a half a million dollars. So for the developer then, say that that is a manual transfer from the artist to the developer rather than uh, instant from the contract. Is that um, the moment of the transfer when the developer then would be counting? The way we're looking at it is it's taxable at whatever the value is when it gets into the developer's account. Okay. Yeah. I really appreciate that you're taking the time for all this. Like, I know it's, it's like very specific questions, but at the same time, it's so, it's so fuzzy that um, I find this endlessly fascinating, but also a little frightening for people just because it's, it's a sticky situation. Yeah, totally. And the, the other reason why at the very beginning, part of it is disclosure. Part of it is also the statement of you need to make sure that you're comfortable with your particular situation and that whoever your service provider is, that they're comfortable with the position to take. Because I've had a conversation earlier this morning with another uh, CPA who's in the Twitter world, and we disagree on a, a couple of different items. And it's one of those things where I have a valid position. The other person has a valid position. We both agree that they're valid positions, but she, uh, the other person feels more comfortable with that position. I feel more comfortable with this position. Mm -hmm. And it's purely a question of what is more defendable or more appropriate for your particular client base. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so someone who then buys, they bought a board ape, say they minted, 10 board apes, it was 0.08 or whatever. It was very nominal compared to what it's worth today. So they spent that money. There's an expense of gas. Um, say they bought it and they're like claiming it as an investment. I don't know exactly what the terminology is there. Um, but now that those 10 board apes or even one went from 0 0.08 to whatever it is now, just through the roof, is that taxable while they're holding the board ape? or any, any project? So under the rules as they are written right now, early January 22, and the reason I'm saying that is because there is a possibility for this to change. The way it's written right now, as long as you do not sell the investment, it is not considered taxable income to you. Okay. There is a possibility that this is going to change and any fluctuation in value on December 31st would be considered taxable. Wow. That opens a can of worms for a multitude of questions. So if you're doing this with shares of General Electric, it's very simple to be like, on December 31st, it closed at whatever the price is. With crypto or NFTs, it's very difficult to say, on December 31st, at midnight UTC, the value of this board ape is this. I'll be the first one to say that I will not know where to start 
other than taking a dart and throwing it at the board to say your gain or your loss on something you haven't sold is this. Because I had a conversation earlier today with somebody who bought a twin flame who also had a pair to it. So the value of the twin flame plus the pair is more valuable than two other people holding a twin flame and a uh, set to it. The two, it, it's the same exact two NFTs, but it's held by two different people is val valued less than one single person holding the same two NFTs. Um, so it, it's really difficult to, if we go the route, if the IRS goes the route of taxing unsold items, it's going to create a lot of difficulties and complexities, which I personally hope we don't go that route. I think there's enough complexities um, if we just simply stay in the, if you sold it, it is taxable. Yeah, and that makes the most sense. Hopefully they stay there. Currently for, say, physical art, is it is it along those lines if you sell it, only it's taxable? For securities in the sense of uh, companies, physical art, um, even your, your own car, it's only taxable when you actually sell it. Okay, and you mentioned securities. So what actually differentiates an NFT from being a security versus not? Because I know that's a very sort of uh, difficult, sort of sticky situation that some NFT projects have gotten into. My answer to that is I am not an attorney. Okay. Yeah. Please speak with your attorney. <laughs> um, it, it is, there lawyers who specialize in securities law okay. who are having a hard time understanding whether or not something is a security. And I do not even want to attempt uh to look into those questions oh yeah perfectly makes sense yeah <laughs> um okay so yeah holding oh i wanted to ask about trading so is a trade of one board ape for a a punk or something at, at any level I'm, I'm using the examples because they're sort of the icons but any sort of trade is that a taxable event even though there is no money trading changing hands arguably two people agree that the value is equal it's a very difficult thing to look at okay. and, and different people will have different positions on this there's also partially a question mm -hmm. of is any additional eth being transferred between parties um if there's eth involved the eth is 100 percent taxable no way around it the question of board ape number seven versus board ape number 24, to be completely honest, I don't know what each, either one of them looks like, mm -hmm. but if let's say seven and 24 are the exact same value appropriated by person A and person B, and they're just doing a swap, transfer to transfer, it, it, it's difficult in my eyes, it's a little bit difficult to say that it's not a, taxable event. The reason being is that what you're doing is you're taking NFT one and selling it and getting NFT two. And as much as you might take the position, well, it's the same value. There's no gain or loss. Person A could have paid $10 for theirs. Person B could have paid $10,000 for it. And it's now worth 25,000. 
Um, in the eyes of the IRS, it's basically somebody sold you an NFT and they told you, I'll pay you back. And in order for you to cover that, I'll pay you back, they're giving you an NFT or you're giving them an NFT. So it's possible that somebody will be able to get comfortable with a position that an exchange of two NFTs with no additional fiat, no additional ETH is not taxable. Personally, I'm not there yet myself. And this is similar to what I mentioned on two factors. One, how do you value NFT one and NFT two to make sure that they're actually the same value? And then the other question is, you can have two accountants in the room and have four different positions. Um, I, I personally am not there on the position of two NFTs exchanged that it's a fully non-taxable event. Yeah, makes sense. And sort of going down the chain, just to rewind for a moment, you mentioned, um, so buying and selling uh, like board Apes or whatever that you're you sell, you bought it for 0.08, you sold it for 50, and then you bought, you worked your way up to this really valuable thing. Is that, are those intermediary purchases? So it would be a taxable event. Sorry, I feel like I'm going uh, all over the place. It'd be a taxable event when the sale is made. Now, using those funds, I go ahead and buy something else. Does that play any sort of role in all of this to change anything? Every single transaction is taxable. And what that means is, you bought it when ETH was a hundred bucks at 0.08. You sold it for 50 when ETH is 4,000. You then had spent 20 ETH when ETH went down to 3,800. So you have a loss because there's a drop in value of ETH that you then spent on a new project. ETH recovered to 4,100 and you sold that 24 let's say 30 and each, every single one of those steps is a completely taxable transaction. The other ones that usually trip people up is a conversation about, I bought it for five ETH and I sold it for four ETH. So it's a loss of ETH. Yes. The only problem is that the IRS looks at everything in us dollars. Your five ETH cost you a hundred each. So you spent 500 bucks but then you sold it for four ETH when ETH was 2000. So you bought it for 500 and you sold it for 8,000. How, how on earth do you even track all of this? This is just <laughs> mind boggling. Um, I guess there's also the a question, the fungibility of currency. Um, actually, before we go further, do you have a little time to stick around? I know we're like, okay, cool. The fungibility of currency how do you quantify then I bought this currency for X and then spent this currency for on Y? So this is where the conversation or topic of using FIFO, LIFO, or any other accounting method to track your ETH comes into play. Okay. FIFO is first in, first out. LIFO is last in, first out. Um, and this is one of the complex things that we end up having to do in order to keep track of, okay, over the life of the year or over your 
career in crypto, which can be multiple years, um, you've transacted in 7,000 ETH. Yes, your wallet may never have gone above 50 ETH in value, but since you've basically recycled the same ETH over and over, you've done $7,000 ETH worth of transactions. We then need to track every single transaction that generated all of this. And this is where it's very time consuming, um, making sure that we're tracking not just the ETH going in and out, but also any gases, failed transactions, conversions from one account to the other. Um, You could be, let's say, buying and selling NFTs in your MetaMask, and then you have a Gemini and Coinbase account that's continuously buying more ETH. But even if you don't use any of the ETH in those two accounts to buy anything in your MetaMask, you can use your coin uh, cost basis from those two accounts to help reduce your tax bill that's being generated in your MetaMask. And wow. it, it's a long-winded way of saying it's a complex math calculation uh, that we use data aggregation software to figure out all of your wallets into a single centralized location. That software gets us to maybe 70%. And then the rest of it is just manual. Wow. Uh, the biggest thing to be careful with is if you're expecting that you can just TurboTax the answer in the sense of like, here's my wallet, hit submit and go. If you had five transactions and it was all ERC-20 um, NFTs, you might be okay. But if you were doing any sort of yield farming, sushi swap, staking, Anything outside of the quote-unquote ordinary, um, you will have errors in whatever software you're using, and it will need to be massaged to get you that final answer. Um, so, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on that note, is there any software you do recommend for the end user to get a, a decent enough lay of the landscape, sort of like to know where they're at, to see, okay, I do need to have a professional come in or um, or not? It's difficult to give any one or two softwares. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason being is, are you on ETH, MetaMask, Solana, Terra? Are you doing volatility trading? Are you doing, one of our clients does a couple of million transactions a year. Oh. Um, it, the big question is, what is it that you are doing? And there's a software that can get you most of the way there. Unfortunately, crypto or fortunately crypto is so early on that no one single software can say, we got you. We can take care of you soup to nuts. Um, Same as how TurboTax was never super great at the very beginning. Uh, It still has problems. Um, There's no one single software out there that we've been able to test and we've probably tested it at this point, 25 to 30 pieces of software um, that is able to take on a blanket. If you have crypto and you need data aggregation, use the software. A lot of it is what is your specific case? What is your volume? What is your platforms? And then go from there. Do you have any for 
if it was a pure NFT sort of play for someone who like nominal volume. So sort of like the average user who's bought and sold NFTs over the last year. Is there any platform for that alone? Just sort of that specific niche? It, even though you're doing NFTs, it's a question of, is it ERC 721s, 1155s? I can tell you right now, basically nobody does 1155 support. Oh, really? Wow. Um, and that's all that's, of OpenSea. Uh, if you minted through OpenSea, they're 1155. 7, tw- uh, 721s, ERC oh. 721s. Um, you're able to pick up that data through a 721 contract, but okay. almost nobody has very good support for 1155s. Um, we're seeing a lot of issues with a lot of the other platforms. Um, we, we, we've been trying to find a very good, um, Terra software. Um, we found somebody that's able to do just Terra, but they can't do anything else. So it it basically becomes a question of like, all right, you, you do bits and pieces here and there. Um, so also the quote unquote average user is probably close to 200 transactions minimum from what we're seeing. We are not really seeing too many people um, who have, I have five transactions. Um, Because for you to even really get started, you need about 10 or 15 transactions. Um, Mint the wallet, put money in the ETH, uh, mint the uh, NFT itself, pay the gas, so on and so forth. So like, from like saying good morning, you're at like 15 transactions. Um, but there's there's a lot of different ones out there. Um, and it's a question of what you're looking to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, the 1155 versus 721 is very, uh, that is that is precarious for some creators because people who mint directly on OpenSea, not on their own contract, the OpenSea contract is 1155. So that actually... I didn't. I had no idea. I didn't even consider that that the difference between the contracts could impact how people can track and do the accounting. That is a lot, <laughs> just a lot, all over the place. Um, so, in terms of a little bit, you said uh, tax planning. Like that's like the above board. Like what you would do. I know people have talked about like wash sales and doing things to try and mitigate. Um, sort of their um, liability for taxes. What kinds of things are actually viable and above board that people can do in a, obviously a case-to-case basis is very specific, but sort of broadly speaking, what are we, what are we talking about? So tax loss harvesting, mm-hmm. I, I think is the actual topic you're, you're discussing. Yeah, It's possible to do tax loss harvesting. For 21, there was no wash sale rules against crypto. The expectation by most individuals, myself included, is that for 22, wash sale rules will kick in. And what is a wash sale rule? So if you sell a coin, so let's say you're selling ETH, and you either buy or sell additional ETH. So, sorry, let me take a step back. If you sell ETH at a loss, and then you buy back into ETH, 30 days prior or after the transaction, that loss goes back into the basis of the ETH that you purchased. So example of this, you bought ETH at 4,000. It then goes down to 3,900. You sell it 
whether it's moving it to a stablecoin, USDC, whether it's by purchasing another NFT, or just simply going back to fiat. That $100 loss from $4,000 to $3,900, uh, $100 loss going down, um, would be a loss as long as you do not buy ETH for the next 30 days. Because let's say you bought ETH at 4200 10 days later. Because within 30 days prior to this transaction of buying ETH at 4200 you had a loss of $100. For record-keeping purposes, you didn't buy it at 4200 You have a basis now of 4300 because the $100 loss goes into your basis. So that when you ultimately sell that new ETH, your starting point for your cost basis is not 4200 4300 well, so that is what, and now that is when there is a wash uh, rule or wash when, there sale, isn't? when there is a wash sale rule. If okay. there is no wash sale rule, uh, you can literally buy and sell willy nilly as you wish. Any losses that are generated are instantly able to be deducted uh, against your capital gains. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that I want to make sure everybody's on the same page with is that if you have a capital loss that is larger than your capital gains, this, that write-off can be limited to how much you can actually take against your ordinary income. So perfect example of this is ordinary income, $50,000. Capital gains, um, 10,000. Capital losses, 15,000. So what ends up happening is that your capital losses of 15,000 offset against $10,000 of capital gains, you're left with $5,000 of capital losses. You have $50,000 of ordinary income. You can offset $3,000 of your ordinary income with your excess capital losses. So you, what ends up happening is that you're taxed on ordinary income of $47,000. And you have a carry forward credit to the following year of $2,000 capital loss. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So, so much, so much to, to digest. Um, just a few more things. I don't want to take too much of your time because I know you're extremely busy. Um, what? Let me actually look just to be sure I'm not missing anything that I had here. Um, so what would you be looking for as an accountant? What What would you or someone else be looking for from the customer? Because I I don't know if it's as simple as giving you like a wallet, a public um, address of a wallet, or if you need someone to be tracking something uh, previously? So for the vast majority of it, as long as we're given the public wallet, um, and as a FYI, you do not need to give anybody your seed phrases from a security standpoint. Never give your seed phrases to anybody. That's so important. Um, Never. We don't need it. Um, do not share your username or passwords to your Gemini, your um, Coinbase, whatever accounts. We don't need it. If we need you to connect through an API for Coinbase or some of the other platforms, uh, the softwares that we use allow for you to do it on your side without, without having to um, give it us the information. You're able to connect through API. Coinbase feed is connected. 
and that's it. One and done. No need for your seed phrases, none of that stuff. Uh, vast majority of the other stuff we're able to take off of ENS um, domains or your public keys. So MetaMask, whatever else you're using. And then because the ledger is public and because it's all available, there's no destruction of it as far as I'm aware, even if you really want to, we're able to take your information straight off the ledger and then start to do the analysis. Uh, we'll most likely come back to you and say, hey, what is this ETH either coming into your wallet or leaving your wallet? Um, if we don't see a, a following mint or something else of that nature or a sale, uh, we'll come back to you with questions. We'll get some more information. We'll do the accounting. And then we'll say, hey, based on our view, you made $25 million. Um, one of two things will happen. Yes, that sounds applicable. Or I maybe made $1,000. I don't know where you're getting $25 million from. We'll review the activity, see where the discrepancies are coming from. Um, make sure that everybody's on the same page and move forward. And like what approximately would that cost for an end user to be uh, doing the accounting with your services? I don't know if it's different than a normal accountant because this is so much more complex or... Um... So for us, um, it really depends on complexity of the client. So somebody who's just basically buying and selling um, ETH, Bitcoins, things of that nature, no yield farming, nothing too crazy. Um, it, it's a completely different price than somebody who's doing a couple of million transactions a year. Um, our usual starting point is roughly $2,500. Mm -hmm. um, and we have clients who go up from there. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, because this is so much work. Like just this over this conversation, there's so much nuance to all of it. I just can't imagine being on your side of this with all these people coming in and having to manage all of this. Um, for someone planning then for 2022, like say maybe they're brand new to the space or whatever it is, how can they plan ahead and do the tax uh, planning like you had mentioned to really optimize their approach to the next year? So first of all, welcome. <laughs> um, the other big things is to just keep track of what's going on. Um, a lot of the tax savings that are possible to be done need to be done prior to the purchase of an NFT or crypto. Um, so the best way for you to exit on a tax efficient way is to first make sure that you're entering in a tax efficient way. And what that means is <clears throat> if you and a buddy want to throw five ETH in together to go buy a bunch of NFTs, make sure that you structure it correctly. Make sure that you put in the appropriate legal entity. Do you need a partnership? Do you need something else? Um, in order for you to have a, an appropriate tax efficient exit, you need to do it from step one. And that's the initial investment and not on the ultimate exit. Um, we've had a number of people who've come to us and said, hey, we've sold out of our NFTs. What can you do to save us money? And unfortunately, the conversation starts with, had we known about this earlier, we could have done more. But there's still things that we can do at this point in time, but our hands are a little tied. The best way to get started, to do a, an appropriate exit, is, is to start it correctly. Yeah, that makes sense.
Yeah. So looking back then, people wouldn't really at this point, especially in 2022, be able to do much for what's already happened in 2021, I assume. There's some things um, that are still possible to do for 21. The biggest thing is making sure that you're capturing the accounting side of things correctly, making sure that um, expenses that you would have had ordinarily that may be considered business expenses are fully picked up appropriately. Um, And then there's also a question of, is that home office deduction really worth it? Yes, it's great to say I was able to write off my apartment, but if the savings is 200 bucks and the likelihood of an audit increases by a multiple, um, you might not want to do that deduction. Um, so it's a question of what else is going on on your return. Um, we've had conversations of like, hey, you should set up a retirement account. And people look at us and say, I'm not putting any money into fiat. It's all staying in crypto forever. And I'm like, that's fine. That's your prerogative. We're here to give you some options. And it's up to you as to which ones you follow and which ones you don't. Yeah. I feel like I could ask just an infinite number of questions for someone in that exact scenario. So they haven't cashed anything out. Like, I know we sort of touched on this, but I just feel like I want to just swing back around to it one more time. They haven't cashed anything out. They had... uh, um, 100 ETH, they, they, they're they a verified project. So 100 ETH came in, it's been spent on different things, airdrops and everything, but nothing has been converted into USD or any sort of fiat, wherever they are. What today do you think would be the best uh, tact for them? I mean, I guess, again, I feel this is a very specific thing that would depend on the person, but um, is there anything that maybe they should start considering or definitely reach out to an accountant, a CPA? So from a U.S. tax perspective, um, reach out to an accountant, make some sort of tax payment to the IRS so that you at least reduce any future penalties and interest. Um, And also look at what ETH was when you did your project and then what your ETH is now and see if there's gains, losses, fluctuation, potentially put it into a stable coin. there's a lot of moving parts there. Yeah, I think the very first one is don't throw all of your money into the IRS, but you want to put at least something to the IRS to at least stop or reduce future penalties and interest. And then you also want to have a conversation with the, we minted 100 ETH. It's now worth X. Uh, we had these expenses to developers, contractors, artists, so on and so forth. Um, what's our tax liability? And make sure that you're going into tax season appropriately. And how would someone find someone like yourself? Because that seems to be extremely difficult. Someone who has put the time in to understand the space as best we can currently. So uh, my Twitter handle is the NFT CPA. Um, and our website is uh, www.nft.cpa. Uh, currently, it is just our client portal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have too much uh, on our website. Um, but those two things are usually the first starting point to have a conversation with us. Um, and then we would then go from there. And just, um, just in case someone's looking maybe locally or something, do you have any recommendations on finding someone else? I know it's like competition, but also at the same time, just to, um, we're not going to be able to service everybody. So I completely understand that. And we're also not the best fit for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, what we've been seeing is that it's 
there's not too many mom and pops shops that are ready for crypto. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of the local stores, the H&R um, blocks and whatnot, they don't have the software. They don't have the training, unfortunately. Um, I would say that there's maybe 10 or 15 accounting firms uh, nationally that are very good at this. Um, most of us are on Twitter. Um, so most of us are already known uh, by the general public. Um with regards to this, there's also lawyers uh, within the space who are able to help answer um, some of the questions. Um, and once again, all of those lawyers are on Twitter uh, and most people already know them. Okay, perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for doing all this and for getting the the information out there with, um, like, obviously, ideally this brings in like customers because you're being public, you're helping people along the way, but so many people are going to take the knowledge that you're sharing both on Twitter through this conversation, through the myriad conversations you have in the Twitter spaces and everything you do that I just want to say thank you. Cause I really, I feel like this is so needed and I just want to tell you that it's very much appreciated. Sure thing, Jeff. I appreciate uh, what you're doing as well. The way we're looking at it is we're not going to be able to service everybody. Um, we, I want to put as much good content out there so that the individual who made $20,000 off of an NFT sale that they got one of um, is able to get their tax returns done correctly without having to be afraid of what's going to happen. Um, and then also we've heard from other service providers that said, I learned something from a Twitter space or something else that was put out. Um, so that's, the main reason for it. We unfortunately can't service everybody. Uh, we'll try to do as many clients as we can um, before April 15th, as well as after May 1st. Um, but the way we're doing it is get as much knowledge out to share with the NFT community, and then we'll see what happens there. Yeah, thank you again. I really want to thank Alex for joining me on this episode. I hope you really learned as much as I did on this. This was so immensely valuable for me and there's so much more to understand, but I feel like I have such a better grasp on the entire the entirety of the tax system when it comes to crypto and NFTs. Even though there's a lot of question marks, there's so much, so much value in everything that he was sharing there. So definitely check him out on Twitter, the NFT CPA, and their website is nft.cpa. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B-Y-L-T C-O to get started. Built. Your website, built for you, simply. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, I would love it if you subscribe on YouTube, give it a little thumbs up, and leave a comment below. Like, tell me the part that was maybe most shocking to you in this episode or most valuable for you on your journey to uh, sort of figuring out how to approach NFTs and crypto moving forward. Well, that'll do it again for this week. I'm Jeff Saris. This has been Starting Now, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>